If you have a Bible this morning, go ahead and open it to the book of John. John chapter 17 is where we're going to be today. John chapter 17. John chapter 17. <clears throat> we'll be finishing up ch- chapter 17 today and really ending a major section in the book. John 17. We're going to look at verses 20 through 26 this morning. Um, every once in a while, Brooke and I, we watch the show. Uh, we haven't watched it in a long time. But last year we were watching a show called America's Got Talent. Some of you guys know what that is. Which, by the way, is a very ironic show because last year when we watched it, I think they had two British judges, a German judge, and a Canadian judge. So it doesn't make any sense. Anyway, America's Got Talent. Uh, they had this, this show. It's a big you know, contest show. And one of the contestants was really a lot of contestants we were watching last summer. Uh, it was this massive choir. Uh, now this choir made really interesting music. They were very positive sounding. Now this choir was different because it wasn't like a kid's choir. It wasn't like a senior adult's choir. It was all kinds of different people. There were old people and young people. There were men. There were women. There were children. They were black, white, Asian, Hispanic, Indian. They were from different religious backgrounds, which we can assume based on their appearance at least. And yet all of them, they were all, they looked so happy and positive. And despite their blaring differences and what was very obvious that they were all very different, came from different walks of life and everything, they had a a like-minded core of joy behind their voices. And so you felt good when you were listening to them sing. And even when we were listening to to them as they bound together by their love for music and a desire to make people feel good with their positivity. You listen to them and what they're singing, it could be some secular song and it really doesn't matter, but there's something in you that was like, this is good. This is a, this is a good thing what's happening here. Something in me and Brooke even was stirred emotionally and when we saw people despite them having huge visible differences, that they were united for a common goal that brought them joy. Why? Well, really, the reason that we got a little bit emotional about that was because it made us, and we even looked at each other and we're like, man, heaven's going to be awesome. (laughs) Heaven's going to be awesome. Major differences, blaring differences, old and young, children, we're going to look so different, and yet there's going to be a common joy to be seen. But really, we don't have to wait for heaven for that. Look around. The church is like that, right? I wouldn't say old. I learned my lesson there. But... Not as young, (laughs) and young, and children, we don't look the same. We share common look, but we don't look the same. We don't talk the same. In fact, I sort of have a language barrier with some of you guys. We're different, aren't we? We're different, and yet we have a common joy that is in Christ. And so this is a preview. This church, and any church that's in Christ, is a preview of heaven. It's a preview of heaven. It's a foretaste. You look around the church on Sundays and it's evidence of the bond of being united in Christ's love. And the thing is, our bond is far stronger than the bond of those people in that choir or the random guy that you high-five at the stadium or your co-worker or the mom's group that you get together with or your classmates. We in this room come from many different backgrounds. We look different. We have different interests, different hobbies. But it is the truth of God's word that unites us each time we gather in this building. According to Jesus, which we're going to see this morning, this binding, this unifying aspect is so deep that it is essential to you accomplishing the purpose for which you were created. And this is that purpose, making much of Jesus. What we're doing here is important. This isn't just some public assembly. 
were gathered for the purpose of collectively making much of Jesus. I want you guys to see this in John 17 this morning. So let's look at it together. John 17, verses 20 through 26. Jesus states this in his prayer. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Verse 24 is a break. All right, look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you've given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus is praying in this passage before his arrest. In fact, if you look at chapter 18, uh, right there at the beginning, you'll see maybe a heading even in your, in your book, uh, in your Bible. It says something along the lines of the betrayal and the rest of Jesus. Well, these are the last things that John records, and it's a prayer, which probably leads us to think that he's praying this in the Garden of Gethsemane, that they're kind of on their way uh, to this arrest, and so they're kind of uh, working their way to this arrest uh, scenario. And so in chapter 17, we see what we call the high priestly prayer. It's Jesus' prayer for his people, all right? For his disciples. He's interceding, mediating between God and his people. And so in this high priestly prayer, we've seen a lot of things. We've seen a few things that Jesus has already said in verses 1 through 5, which we talked about a few weeks ago. We saw that Jesus' goal and what he wants is that he and the Father be glorified in his ministry, especially as this ministry comes to an end. Then we saw that Jesus wants his disciples, that is the eleven, and the people that are on earth that believe in him, he wants his disciples to be protected, that they be protected from Satan and protected from temptation to fall away. He asks God to keep them aligned with God's will, to keep them of oneness in mind and and desire, oneness in the character of God. Last week, Brother James preached from verses 17 through 19. And we saw that Jesus then asks for his disciples to be sanctified in the word, in truth is what it said. Sanctified in your truth, which is your word, he says, as they go into the world. Which means, Lord, or Father, help them to be aligned in their mission. Let them be sanctified together in truth in their mission. And really, I think that's an important segue into where we are this week. That what Jesus is going to say is, Father, grow them in your word. This means to be sanctified. Set them apart in your word so they will be effective in their mission together. So, if you're taking notes this morning, and I hope that you are, this is going to be our breakdown. That Jesus desires for me in his farewell prayer, two things. Jesus desires for me in his farewell prayer, one, that my main desire 
be to display Christ in all that I say or do. That my main desire be to display Christ in all that I say or do. My main desire be to display Christ in all that I say or do. When I was in seminary, and uh, even after seminary, learning to do uh, premarital counseling and sort of learning what that looks like in my internships before I came and was your pastor, um, I was learning how to do premarital counseling, and I was taught that the goal of premarital counseling is not really to counsel the couple, but to counsel each individual. Does that make sense? That we're really not doing premarital counseling for a for a team, you're doing individual counseling for two different people. And the thing is, if each individual is seeking Christ, the marriage will seek Christ. You see what I mean? The unit will seek Christ if each individual that makes up that unit will seek Christ. This portion of the prayer sort of parallels with that because this portion of the prayer is for the church as a whole, but for Spring Hill as a church to display Christ together. Each of us individually needs to embrace this passage personally, okay? There's a lot of language in here about a team, about being one, about being unified. But what's important is to note that if we're going to do this together, church, we have to do this individually. We have to receive this word personally. So with that in mind, look at verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only, he's saying these people only, these eleven, I'm not asking for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Okay, Jesus is praying for more than just his current 11 disciples, but for the countless that will yet believe in him, including us today. What he's saying is, the people that are going to believe because of the testimony of these people on earth, those are the ones I want to pray for. Not just the people here, but all that will believe. What's he praying for them? Verse 21. That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So that, this is a purpose statement, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. What's he praying? That every single person that is and ever will belong to the body of Christ would be, to use his words, in us. There's a weird thing going on here, and, and this is obviously the cause of some confusion when understanding the Trinity, which is that God is one, and yet He is three. He is three persons, and yet one essence. God is one, and yet He manifests Himself in three separate and different ways. See, the Father and the Son are distinguishable. We see in the book of John, even, just by itself, that the Word was with God, okay, what was with God, so Jesus is with God, so differentiation there. We also see that the Son is praying to the Father in this passage. We also know that the Father has commissioned and he sent the Son, John three sixteen. We know that the Son obeys, and yet we know that God is one. In a similar way, you and I are distinct, right? Believers, you and I, we're different, we're distinct, and yet we are one in purpose, one in love, one in action to serve God. In other words, we are different people, and yet we are jointly in submission to one pastor, the shepherd of Christ. I can illustrate it this way, in sports, and I I know that not everybody's a sports fan, but even if you're not, you understand this illustration, and that is that in sports, you have people that play different positions, for example, basketball players, everybody has a different position, everybody has a different job, but everybody's on the team, all right, 
Everybody's different, but they're all basketball players. You, maybe you're a teacher or know things about teaching. People can teach different subjects. And you, if you're on staff at maybe South Lamar or New Hope, you have a, a subject that you, a subject matter that you approach and that you teach. And so uh, teachers teach different subjects, but they're all one in the fact that they're on the same team. We're all helping students learn. Okay? So they're one in goal, one in mission, and yet they're separate. Nurses and physicians tend to different parts of the body, but they all aspire to aid people, the body, to be in good health. Sameness, and yet differentiation. The reason I say that is that the thing that binds believers to one another is not tradition or skin color or style of music or where you're from, your hometown. It is Christ and God's word that binds believers to one another. That is our anchor. That is our wholesome anchor. We see this in a couple of ways. We saw it in verse 20. It's the word that binds us, right? He says, who will believe in me through their word? Okay, so their testimony to reach people. Also in verse 17, which James preached last week, to sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. What that means, that word sanctify, it means to set them apart for a purpose. Sanctification is to grow in Christ. So that's the purpose. How do we do that? In the word of God. That is what differentiates and yet unites God's people. And so what's the goal? Look at the last part of verse 21. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. What's the goal? That those living in rebellion against God, world as he says it, would come to believe in Christ as Lord and Savior. That is the mission of the church. How will God accomplish this? Through the church. Through the lives of his people. Look at verses 22 and 23. It says, The glory that you've given me, I have given to them. Okay, that's an important phrase. The glory that you've given me, Father to Son, I have given to Christians, to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. 23. I in them... And you and me, that they may become perfectly one, here's the purpose, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. That's a mouthful there, okay? And I know it's very confusing. What's all this you and me and I and you and us and each other? What in the world are you talking about? Let me explain this very, very simply, okay? There's a word here that's very important, and that's the word glory. Now, when you think glory, you may think about God's divine uh, godness. But this definition is a little bit different than that. What Jesus is saying is, uh, well, I'll put it this way. When you think of the word glory, if you were a first century Christian... Or even before that, if you were a Hebrew, an Israelite, before those times, glory literally means it's, it's, a, it's an illumination, like a bright light, okay? So if there was a glory of, of a headlight, it would be its, its beam, its, its shiningness, all right? So when we think about God, what is it about God that is brightly illuminating? What is it about Him that's big, that's loud? Simply put, this is what Jesus is saying. The glory that you've given me, this is what it is. Glory is God's character revealed. It's revelation of God's character. Now certainly we know that Jesus performed miracles and did amazing things, but specifically in this passage, what he's referring to is the revelation of God's character. Well, that leads us to another question. How has Jesus revealed God's glory as in his character? How does Jesus reveal God's character? Where do you start? I mean, he is God, right? 
perfect service. He just washed his disciples' nasty feet. Right? Perfect service. Perfect love. He was about to lay down his life for his disciples. Amazing sacrifice. Amazing mercy. Don't you know that there were so many times that Jesus just wanted to snatch him up and shake some sense into his people? Mercy. Amazing forgiveness. I mean, he just dined with Judas, the one who would betray him. He just fed him. Had him over and just loved on him. Divine attributes. The character of God. Generosity. How has Jesus revealed God's glory, his character? Service, love, sacrifice, mercy, forgiveness, generosity. And the list goes on and on and on. What Jesus is saying is, the character that we, Father, possess, I have taught them how to have that same glory. In other words, that he's taught believers, those who follow him, to walk in the character of God. To walk like we walk. He's saying, I have taught them to be imitators of me. So what does it mean for us, for anyone, to be an imitator of Christ's glory? It doesn't mean that you're God. It means that you amplify or exemplify the character of God. So what does it mean to be an imitator of Christ? The same things we just mentioned, right? That you exemplify things like service, love, sacrifice, mercy, forgiveness, generosity, kindness. What would Jesus do, in other words? Wearing the character of God. This is put so perfectly in Philippians 2, verses 2 through 5. You know, go ahead and turn there. Philippians 2. Keep your finger in this place. We'll come back. Philippians 2, 2 through 5. Turn there real quick. I want you to see this with your own eyes. Being an imitator of Christ, Paul's addressing the church in Philippi. In Philippians 2, 2 through 5. And this is what he says. Okay, just think about what, what it means to imitate Jesus. He says this in Philippians 2, 2 through 5. Right before he talks about the cross, he says this. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love. Being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And you can skim the next part. He talks about the cross of Christ and that that is the perfect exemplification of the character of God. Now why should we imitate Christ in this way? Listen to me say this, we don't imitate Christ for the sake of being a good Christian or to be a a, a good moral person, to be good Christian people. We don't imitate Christ for those reasons. We imitate Christ because of what it says in John 17 at the end of verse 23, so that the world may know that Father you sent me and you love them. Why do we imitate Christ? So that the people in your life know that God loves them. And that he sent Jesus to die to save them. That's why you do WWJD. That's why you live like Jesus. It's so that people can see the character, the glory of God. That's what Jesus did, right? Why did Jesus come? So that people could see the glory of God. They could see God in front of them. You see, we don't have... Any photographs of Jesus, the paintings that you see are likely not very uh, accurate. 
Um, a lot of them, a lot of those paintings are of white Jesus. Guys, Jesus wasn't white. Okay, we don't we don't know what Jesus looked like, but he didn't look like white Jesus. My, my point is that we don't know what Jesus looked like, but God has given us a special purpose, and that purpose is this: the church is called to be the photograph of Jesus. The church is called to be the photograph of Jesus. What I mean by that is that your life, my life, the life of us as a collective are meant to be a portrait of the love and grace of Jesus. It's a high calling, isn't it? That's a high calling. Because if you're like me right now, you're thinking, whew, I'm not a very good photograph. I'm not living up to that standard. And you're right. Thank God for His grace and mercy. But man, we should strive to do a lot better than we're doing. The sad reality is that oftentimes, if we're honest with ourselves, we make Jesus look really, really ugly, don't we? Christians stereotypically are oftentimes selfish with their money. In fact, um, you'll see people that are servers, and I don't know if you guys are friends with anybody that hosts or, or waits tables or anything like that. Servers notoriously say, and they're not just trying to be jerks, but they say that the Sunday crowd after church are the worst tipping hours of their jobs. Because Christians are the worst tippers. Christians by nature, I don't know what it is, but, but we don't make Jesus look very good. Selfish with money, selfish with time, we make time for sports and activities. We love to make time for those things. I bet you if you're an Alabama fan, you were there to watch kickoff yesterday. You make time for that. It's important to you. Your kids are doing the sports thing. You make time for that. It's important to you. You make time for what you care about, in other words. Time is important. You only get a certain amount, right? Time is important. We make time for the things that we care about. But here's the thing. And I, has, I, I thought about whether or not to even say this. Our discipleship groups start next Sunday night. Most of you won't be there. That's more important than sports, right? Growing in your faith. Being one, as Jesus is talking about, and and growing from the sermon, discussing it with one another, building community with your fellowship. It's not evil to like sports. It's not evil to be entertained and, and catch the ball game or whatever it is that you're doing on Sunday evening, getting ready for work the next morning. It's not evil to do those things, but God is giving you an opportunity to honor him with your life. To grow in godliness. And yet, most of you won't be there tomorrow, next weekend. I'm not trying to guilt you into going out, out there and signing up. I'm just saying, like, something's got to give, right? We're selfish. We're selfish with our time. We're selfish with our money. We're selfish with our speech, even. The church is, now I'm not just talking about spring, I'm talking about any church. You know, this is a, a notorious thing. The church is notoriously known as a den of gossip and spreading people's business, finding a reason to be mad about something and bitter people. How, that just doesn't make any sense, does it? If we're to be a portrait of Jesus, why is that the case? Because we know, we know that whether it's us or somebody else, that's true. That is true. Sometimes we're passive-aggressive and bitter toward people instead of showing them mercy. Guys, I think one of the greatest indicators that you're walking with Jesus is that when a brother or sister sins against you, you give them the benefit of the doubt. You show them grace and you show them mercy. 
Even if they were doing it in malice against you, show them grace and mercy. Because that's what we've been showing in Christ, right? I'm just saying, like, let's be real for a second. If we're meant to be the photograph of Jesus that this world looks at and says, I want what they're having. Can't we live to a higher standard of righteousness? Can't we follow Jesus with the way that we talk? With the way that we spend our time? With the way that we spend our money? With the way that we spend time with one another? I've said this before, but if all I knew about Christianity was what I saw on Christian, or what I saw that Christians posted on Facebook, I'll be honest, I don't think that I'd want anything to do with it either. Listen, if Jesus is the glorious figure that you believe him to be, and he is, your main desire will be to rightly display him with an inner conviction of love toward other people. It means that the way that you relate to your wife will be love. The way that you relate to your husband will be the love of Jesus. The way that you relate to your children, your classmates, waiters, teachers, coaches, peers. You relate to people in your life the way that Jesus would relate to them. Why? Because of verse 23. That the world, including your family, including your friends, may know that God sent Christ and that God loves them. Guys, if God sees fit to love other people, you better be right behind them. Main desire, be to display Christ in all that I say and do. Secondly, Jesus desires for me in his farewell prayer. Second, that I strive to walk with him now and anticipate being with him in eternity. That I strive to walk with him now and anticipate being with him in eternity. The closing part of Jesus' prayer, and, and we're ending a huge section here, by the way. I mean, we've been in this farewell discourse for a long time. I don't know exactly, but it's probably been three or four months that we've been in the farewell discourse. And that we're ending a huge section here. And so Jesus is closing this very meaningful prayer with a hopeful longing of restored fellowship with his people who he is leaving to go and be with the Father. This is a sad time for Jesus. Not just because he's about to suffer a terrible, agonizing, brutal death, but because he's leaving his best friends. He's leaving them. And he's not going to see them for a while. So Jesus is bearing his heart here. And he brings this hopeful longing of restored fellowship to his people. Look at verse 24. Father... I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. What's happening here is that Jesus is reiterating verses 1 through 5. He's saying, I'm going to return to my former glory. I'm going to be back with the Father. But this time... He's awaiting his people joining him. Now it's hard to imagine what the glory of God, what the glory of Christ before the foundation of the world, even now as we speak, what does that look like? I don't know. But here's a passage that we should keep in mind. 1 John 3, 2 says this. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when it appears, or when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. It's written by a guy that's already seen Jesus. In fact, he's seen the resurrected Jesus. And yet he anticipates a day that he sees Jesus in his all full glory. 
And we shall be like him because we see him as he is. The point here is that current salvation is a foretaste, as we sing, a foretaste of glory divine. Saved now. Wonderful blessing now. But it's a foretaste, something awaiting us of glory divine. Look at verses 25 and 26. (coughs) O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. This is an important verse. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them. And I in them. I want to focus. I'm going to reread verse 26. Okay, this is the focus as we're going to wrap it up. Okay, verse 26. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known for two reasons, okay? One, number one, that the love with which you have loved me may yet be in them and I in them. What Jesus is saying is, I have manifested God. You know what manifested means? It means to take something invisible and make it tangible. Make something not seen and make it seen. Jesus came and said, I am going to manifest God. A couple of passages come to mind when I think about this. John 1, same guy. John 1, verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God, but listen to this. The only God who's at the Father's side, listen, He, that's Jesus, has made Him known. Hebrews 1, 3 says that He, that's Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. What I'm trying to say is that Jesus came to make God known. Why? Not because he needed you, not because he was bored, but for two reasons. And he mentions them both in verse 26. Number one, Jesus came to make God known, number one, that God's love may be in you. (laughs) Jesus came to make God known that God's love may be in you, part of you, among you, with you. What this means is that, I sort of already said it, so I'm just going to echo it. It means that you should love people like God loves you. Grace, mercy, forgiveness. Without condition. This means that you're loving people despite being sinned against. Isn't that the way that God loves you? You can't outrun and and sin in a way that God no longer loves you. It's love despite being sinned against. It's love with, hear this, with no expectation of return. It's love not based on deservedness. It's love that doesn't hold grudges. It's love that tends to the needs of other people, which we saw in Philippians 2. That's what it means. That the love of God be in you. That you simply live out the love of God. I say simply. Because it's very simple. It is not easy. But that's one reason that Jesus made manifest God. Because he wanted his people to wear love more than they wear just following a bunch of rules. Second reason God came to, or Jesus came to make God known. That Jesus himself may be in you. This is the climax. This is the best part. That Jesus himself may be in you. If you've heard nothing else that I've said, I want you to listen, okay? This is without a doubt the most beautiful and wonderful part of this prayer in three little words. And it says in my translation at the end of verse 26, he says, I in them. What that means is that Jesus is saying, me in their midst, me with them, I in them, God dwelling within his people. 
want you guys to be still for just a moment. Just think about the holiness of God. Perfect. Sinless. Can't even look on His face. Righteous in every way. Isaiah looks at him in Isaiah 6 and becomes undone. Righteous. Holy. That God says, I am them. Think about yourself in comparison to those things about God. And yet, Jesus says, and I in them. Think back to the Garden of Eden. I'm going to break down the gospel for you guys, okay? And I hope it's okay because it shouldn't ever get old. Think back to the Garden of Eden. God created man. I'm going to paraphrase. What he was doing when he created man was saying, I and them. I'm going to dwell with men. So he creates Adam and Eve to be with them. They were in the garden. He gave them jobs. They had fellowship. They had friendship. And yet they sinned against him. Adam and Eve sinned against him. Do you know what they did when they sinned? They hid from him. The language is like someone that has a relationship with someone else, a friendship with someone else, and then they cower away from them. That's what happens, right? They damaged, they betrayed that friendship with God, and yet God still loved them. He promised to recover this friendship with his people, but he had to banish them from the Garden of Eden, didn't he? Listen, listen, listen. Had to banish them. They had to leave. Why? Because God is holy. He can't be with them. He can't be with sinners. And so he banished them, told them to leave. And yet, he still wanted to be with them. Later in the narrative, God chose Abraham and said, Abraham, I'm going to bless the world through you. I want to use you. He chose Abraham with a big purpose. I'm skipping a lot of guys that he chose and women that he chose. But he called Moses. He calls Moses this little old guy with a big history and a big future. And he says, Moses, I want you to go and escort my people and be my leader for my people because they are my people. I in them. They're mine. Set my people free. Go and demand the freedom of my people. Not only that, Pharaoh freed his people and God escorted his people to the promised land. Despite their lack of faith, he led them. Despite them building a golden calf, he led them. Despite them whining and complaining and saying, we better just go back to to Egypt because even though we were slaves, at least we had different types of food, he still loved them and still said, I with them. He said, build a tabernacle. Do you know why he said build a tabernacle? This massive, beautiful tent. The reason he wanted them to build a tabernacle is because he said, I want to dwell with you. That's my house. I with them. When they got to the promised land, finally after 40 years, do you know what he asked David to build? Or asked his son Solomon to build? The temple. You know why? I with them. I belong with people. That's going to be my house. And yet, it was still broken. The fellowship was broken. Friendship was broken. He told him to put in that temple a curtain, a thick curtain that would separate God from man because even though I want to be with you, I can't be because we're not friends anymore. It anticipates something. I with you. I with them. And yet they were idolatrous. They took up foreign gods, foreign idols. And God said, you're going to have to be punished. I want to be with you. 
And yet you're unfaithful. And so he sent them into exile, carried off into captivity, hundreds of miles to their east. And yet 70 years later, he saved them. Why? Because they're his. I with them. He saved them. He rescued them from captivity. Brought them back to that promised land. You know the first thing that they did when they got back? Go read Ezra. They rebuilt the temple. Why? I with them. What's the point of being back in the promised land if they're not with God? I with them. I belong with my people. And so they rebuilt the temple, rebuilt the nation of Israel. Why? Because I with them. But here's the thing. They still weren't friends. The relationship was still broken. And then for 500 years, there was silence. Nothing from God. No prophets. No men as a mouthpiece. Nothing. But then, an angel appears to some random guys and says, I with them. Jesus steps into the world, and you know what his name was? Emmanuel. You know what that means? God with us. You see the theme here, right? I with them. And Jesus came to accomplish us with God. The relationship, the friendship was still broken. But what Jesus is about to do as he's closing this prayer, listen, likely in a garden, was saying, I'm here to accomplish what started in the beginning. God with us. I with them. And so he's praying this prayer. And he would reconcile the broken relationship that we can be friends again with God. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says that Christ reconciled us to himself. You know what that word means, reconciled? It means taking two things that were together, then were broken apart, and brings them back together. And now, you go read 1 Corinthians. Do you know what your body is? It's a temple. What's the temple? I with them. Do you see this beautiful theme unfolding for thousands of years? Guys, God wants to be with you. I with them. And as a result, Hebrews 4.16 says, let us then, not in broken friendship, but it says, let us then, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. I want you guys to understand something. Jesus came to restart Eden. Eden was sinless. It was us with Him. I with them. Friendship with God. Did you know that when Jesus was resurrected, we're going to see this in John, when Jesus was resurrected, the first person that we see sees Him was a woman named Mary Magdalene. In John, I think it's chapter 20, do you know what she says? It says that she mistook Him to be the gardener. Jesus accomplished the resurrection in a garden. Why? Because he's resetting Eden. I with them. God wants you because you belong to him. Do you understand how beautiful it is that God loves you? He wants to be with you. But listen, people, when you sin, you retrace the steps of our first ancestors hiding And cowering from that friendship. A friendship with a God that desires to be with you. You belong to and in Him. Folks, crucify your sin 
Don't be like our first ancestors, hiding from God. But draw near to the throne of grace with confidence because Jesus has accomplished I with them. If you come into this room today and you've been wrestling with a burden in your life and you want so badly to be able to say that you're a friend of God but you've never come to a point in your life where you've confessed your sin and said God save me. I want to be reunited with you. I want to be friends with you again. Hear me say this. God doesn't want you to follow a bunch of rules. He simply wants you. He just wants you. He wants you to love Him. He wants you to accept Him, to embrace Him. He wants you this morning to stop hiding from Him. Jesus said this, and I'll close with this statement, Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, Lord, help us to help and to live out a main desire to display the matchless worth of Christ in everything that we say and do. Lord, I pray that you would be the Lord of our lives in everything. That we would honor you with our time, with our money, with our resources, with our affections, with our speech, with the way that we treat other people, that you would be the target of every action and thought that we have. But Lord, when we inevitably fail, help us this morning to be reminded the way that Jesus closed this prayer with those little words, those three little words, I with them. Lord, that may be the most profound mystery in all of human history, that the God of the universe would want to dwell with us. Lord, there are people in this room this morning that have been running, that they have followed in the footsteps of their first ancestors, and when they have sinned, they have hidden from God. But Lord, help them to see this morning that your desire is not to make them feel like trash. But your desire is that they would understand that you want them. Lord, help us to fall on our knees. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.